Francis has been speaking a lot lately about the need to convert from being rigid, pharisaical types who leave others behind because of our way of worship. And it got me thinking, if only there was someone who could explain all of what Francis is doing and his motivations from the perspective of a true believer in his cause. Thankfully, I have that for you today, but we'll start with an update in Chicago where the Latin Mass is all but impossible to attend now, as well as the traditional sacraments that go with it, thanks to the voice of Francis himself, Cardinal Supich, who I used to joke was a friend of the channel, until I got tired of explaining that it was just a joke. But in all seriousness, these are confusing times for Catholics, where the worst elements in the Church are protected by Francis, while the faithful face the wrath of the modernists in Rome. On all of this, Father Z, on his blog, received a following message from a reader of his in Chicago, and he relays it to us here, quoting his post on his own blog. Since you have posted about Cardinal Supich's TLM restrictions, I thought you should know that permission for three parishes, St. Mary of Perpetual Help, St. John Vianney, and St. Odillo, have all been denied. The only other TLM that is offered in the Archdiocese by a diocesan priest is the St. James at Sagbridge Mission. I do not know if they have been permitted to continue. This only leaves St. John Cantius, St. Peter's, staffed by the canons regular, and the Shrine of Christ the King. People are sad, angry, and hurt. Please pray for us in Chicago. There are also many unanswered questions regarding the Archdiocese's failure to identify, punish, and remove Ted McCarrick-style priests from ministry at the very same time that faithful priests are harshly treated with threats, intimidation, and unjust removal from parishes where they have strong support from the people. End quote. There's a strange pattern in all this in Chicago, and really in the church in large. The church has somehow found itself in the grips of men like McCarrick and Pastor Jimmy Martin. Those two issues are inseparably linked, despite all the protestations to the contrary. And we've all noticed that priests with the tendencies of McCarrick are covered for by priests and prelates who are very much like Pastor Jimmy Martin in their behavior, especially ones who have made strangely supportive statements about Pastor Jimmy and his work over the years, men like Tobin and Supich and the rest. Meanwhile, faithful priests are the ones they target with their persecution, to the point where the laity don't have any idea what's going on. We've entered a very confusing time in the church, which has been building on the diabolic disorientation that entered the church in the 1960s. The diabolical fog has grown thicker and more pronounced as the modernists have gotten more and more control of things, but their time draws short, though for how much longer they'll rule is really anyone's guess. But we can see that they know that things may not go well for them much longer, since Francis's actions against the faith had not exactly been broadly popular. An example of this is from professional Francis fanfiction writer Austin Ivray, who, when he's not prosecuting faithful Catholics at their own parish, he's writing propaganda pieces about the need to suppress faithful Catholics for Francis. Like this piece, headline from Commonweal, The Limits of Dialogue, Why Francis Has Been So Tough on Traditionalists. It may serve Mr. Ivory better to explain why Francis is going after trads while there are plenty of McCarrick and Jimmy Martin-style priests running around free to do their evil deeds, instead of explaining why Francis needs to go after traditionalists. The public deserves an explanation, Mr. Ivory, but from this article we learn how these people are justifying their actions against the faith. After describing widespread confusion about Francis's actions in Traditionis Custodis, coming from literally all quarters in the church, including people on Francis's side asking publicly if there was not a better way to deal with meanie poo-poo-headed trads, Mr. Ivory gives us this explanation. Quote, Corruption e peccato, 
is one of Father Jorge Mario Bergoglio's most finely argued and nuanced writings from the time of his so-called Cordoba exile in the early 1990s. It was a time of great desolation and suffering for the erstwhile leader of the Argentine Jesuit province, but also one of great fruitfulness, the period in which he produced his best writings. Bergoglio's distinction between sin and corruption is both clear and fascinating, and the conclusion that follows from that distinction, that sin and corruption call for very different responses, explain why Francis chose to act as he did in the face of the traditionalist insurgents. While corruption is, of course, connected to sin, resulting from sins repeated and deepened over time, in crucial respects it is different, not at least in the corrupt person's distinctive way of proceeding. Hence, writes Bergoglio, we could say that while sin is forgiven, corruption cannot be forgiven, for at the root of corruption is a refusal of God's forgiveness. The corrupted person or organization sees no need of repentance, and their sense of self-sufficiency gradually comes to be regarded as natural and normal. Unless corrected, the corruption deepens over time, for the corrupt, far from being in reality self-sufficient, are in fact slaves to a treasure that has conquered their hearts, e.g. money, power, honor, or privilege. To conceal the enslavement, the corrupt energetically cultivate an appearance of righteousness and good manners. Always justifying themselves, they finally become convinced of their own moral superiority. Conversely, the sinner, even when not ready to repent, knows that he is a sinner and yearns to throw himself on God's mercy. This is the key distinction. The sinner remains, however obscurely and unconsciously, open to grace, while the corrupt deny that they sin. Enclosed by their pride, they shun out the possibility of grace. End lengthy quote. So traditional Catholics who only want the faith and worship our forebears that are morally corrupt don't have the faith, because that's what he's saying there, and they don't know it, and have taken on an air of self-righteousness. That's re the reasoning here, if we can call it reasoning. Now, well, look, I will be the first to admit that sin is, a, is rampant in traditional Catholic circles because we are human and subject to the same temptations anyone else in the world is. I'll also be the first to tell you that the most traditional Catholics actually have the faith. We have what our forebears would recognize as the Catholic faith. Maybe we're not great Catholics in all things, but compared to those from simpler times especially, but we do have the faith. We want sanctity. Compare that to what all the statistics tell us about the state of affairs in the mainline church, and there's simply no comparison. But that's not the point. The point is that we've been subject to an attempt to build a new faith for decades, and the resurgence of traditional Catholicism has blocked it, or at least stalled it. It turns out the faith that came to us from Christ and the apostles is far more compelling and attractive than a bad rebranding and remaking of it in the image and likeness of the world, and the modernists know it, so they have to try to bury the faith forever. But let's continue with Mr. Ivray, who describes to us how Francis is trying to cure us of our rigidity and inflexibility. The arrogance here is breathtaking. Quote, Unlike sin, corruption is not forgiven but cured. Rather than dialogue, which would only serve to feed the corrupt person's self-justification, the proper response is to put such a person in crisis. As Bergoglio observes in a footnote, the Lord cures the corrupt not through acts of mercy, but through major trials. Grave affliction, bankruptcy, the sudden death of a loved one, the FBI raiding your office. Some traumas uniquely have the potential to break down the armor of corruption and allow grace to enter, Bergoglio writes. Francis has often used armor as a metaphor to describe the heart closed to God. He did so recently at the Mass of the Epiphany, when he said faith was not a suit of armor that encases us, but rather a fascinating journey, a constant and restless movement, ever in search of God, always discerning our way forward. To treat faith as a suit of armor, a means of self-defense, is to corrupt it in oneself. Certain kinds of behavior serve as indicators of corruption. The corrupt typically justify themselves with comparisons to others, like the Pharisees in Luke 18.11. Another warning sign is triumphalism. Whereas the sinner feels not only guilty but shame, 
The corrupt are triumphantly shameless. They secure accomplices by offering them the same feeling of superiority and self-satisfaction. End quote. According to him, there doesn't appear to be any putting on the armor of God with Francis, despite sacred scripture telling us to armor ourselves in the faith. No, we must journey together and learn experiences and dialogue and question everything we know about the faith. To paraphrase about a hundred different things Francis has said that all amount to our need to reject the faith in favor of the innovations of our time. Recently, Francis said some words publicly on the feast of the conversion of St. Paul that on the surface sounded fairly Catholic and innocuous. The need to convert and follow God's will and not our own and all that typical stuff. Just remember, though, that he's also been saying a lot about the need to abandon rigidity and our ways of worship that leave others behind, meaning our need to allegedly abandon our traditions in favor of his universal brotherhood and his God of surprises. Remember that because all of those words of his hover over everything else he says or does. Now, I'm going to close here with a couple of thoughts from the greatest pope of the 20th century, Pope St. Pius X, whose words speak prophetically from beyond the veil of time. The great pontiff who gifted the church with the oath against modernism and the great encyclical Pascendi knew our times well. They had already started before his reign. See if his description fits the bill. Quote, Truly we are passing through disastrous times when we may well make our own the lamentation of the prophet. There is no truth, and there is no mercy, and there is no knowledge of God in the land. See Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Yet in the midst of this tide of evil, the virgin most merciful rises before our eyes like a rainbow, is the arbiter of peace between God and man. End quote. There is no truth in our times, only ambiguity and innovation, a relentless pursuit of something called progress that really only drives us all to perdition. And what are we to do in these times, says the saintly pontiff? Rigidly cling to the faith and resist changes. Quote, the great movement of apostasy being organized in every country for the establishment of a universal church of man, which shall have neither dogmas nor hierarchy, neither discipline nor for the mind nor curb for the passions, and which under the pretext of freedom and human dignity would bring back to the world, if such a church could overcome, the reign of legalized cunning and force and the oppression of the weak and of all those who toil and suffer. Indeed, the true friends of the people are neither revolutionaries nor innovators. They are traditionalists. End quote. He sounds far too rigid for our modern ears, where even the best of us are beset by sinful temptations offered by our times, if the priests who have spoken about hearing the confessions of traditional Catholics are to be believed. And yet the solution, according to the saintly pontiff, is pretty straightforward. Keep the faith, resist modern errors, and become saints. Simple, yet so hard, especially when the apostasy is being led from the top of the church, which I am convinced is what the third secret of Fatima was truly about. What do we do in these times? Does Ivory's explanation of Francis's motivations and methods sound as diabolical to you as they do to me? Did they convince you that Francis is right? I doubt it. Let me know your thoughts on all this in the comments, please, and like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. As for me and my family, we will keep the faith as our ancestors had it, regardless of the cost. I hope you'll join us. Until then, as always, pray for the Church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.